Scripture reading this morning is out of Second Thessalonians, first chapter. To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of all of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteousness judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ." These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you in advance for what you will do through your word. It is powerful, it is active, it is alive, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, And we ask that it would search our hearts and that it would bless us as we seek to be ready for the day we see Jesus. Do this work now and in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to ask at the beginning of my message that you would give me an honest opinion, maybe write it down. What do you think of prophecy. What do you think of prophecy? It's a word that I think immediately brings a reaction in everyone of one sort or another. Some people will scoff at taking it seriously. Other people, it will create a kind of interest, a sort of question that they long to have answered. Right now, if you're driving on 75 southbound, coming from, say, Miller Road, you'll see a giant billboard that promises to tell you what Jesus teaches prophetically. I did not pay for that billboard, but that is exactly what we're going to do today. Prophecy is is a little bit of a weird subject. Some people laugh at it, but most people do have a vague sense that some things in life are predetermined. 
You get this when people talk about soulmates. There's one person out there that's just right for you. Well, why would that be? It's not a product of chance. We use expressions like, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. Well, what does that even mean? Who means it to be so? The idea of prophecy is all over our literature. It's in books, it's in movies, it doesn't matter if it's Shakespeare or Harry Potter. The idea that some things are determined and cannot be changed is pervasive. I want to give you just one example for a moment that shows where we're at culturally, not necessarily as a church. If you've ever studied Shakespeare, think about the story of Macbeth for just a moment. Macbeth is a, a thane over a village. He's, he's a ruler, he's a lord, it means he has a castle, it means he's responsible for some people. And he encounters these three witches at the beginning of the play. And they tell him things about the future of his life. They tell him that he will get another castle over a neighboring village, that his rule will expand, and then one day he will be king. And sure enough, he is able to to rule over this other castle, so he begins to think, maybe I will be king. And he begins to act on what they have told him, and his actions are violent and terrible. He commits murder, his wife encourages him to murder, but he's vacillating throughout over whether or not what he's doing is right. But he remembers what those women told him, and then they show up again. And they say, why are you so afraid? And they tell him, no man born of woman will be able to harm you. And so he thinks, I'm invincible. No one can hurt me. No one can harm me. And so he proceeds to grab power with terrible violence. And then at the end of the play, a character named Macduff comes at him, and he's sensing that he's losing everything. And so he brings up this prophecy. He says, why would you attack me? No man born of woman could ever harm me. And Macduff says, I was not born of woman. I was untimely ripped. And so there's the terror that this person apparently can harm him because the prophecy didn't apply to Macduff. What the play never questions is that the prophecy is right. And Shakespeare uses that premise that everyone accepted that the future can be known and that some things are determined. Here's what's missing in that kind of view of prophecy that so many people do accept whether it's in popular horror movies, whether it's in classic literature, whether it's in a novel. So many people will accept that premise, but here is what's missing. The universe is not ruled by impersonal fate. Nothing that is determined is an accident. The Bible teaches that all things are planned by God 
who rules on high in eternal joy. Prophecy is not predicting the future or seeing the future in some sort of crystal ball. Prophecy is declaring what God has said and what God has determined. One prophet in the Old Testament said it this way, and I love how he puts it. This is from the book of Amos in chapter 2. It says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Now, now catch that. That means that God is choosing his own actions. He's not subject to some fate. It's not as if this plan exists and God has to operate within it. God is the one making the plan. And he reveals it to his prophets. Amos continues, The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Amos is explaining the burden a prophet has when he hears from the Lord that he has to speak what God has said. And he's showing that the details of our world, both small and great, are all part of the plan of God. That's why we call God the Almighty. That's what it means that he is sovereign. And God is glorified through prophecy because when he declares that something will happen, and it does happen, as happens again and again throughout Scripture, it proves that his power is at work in the world. And Luke's gospel, which we have been in for quite some time now, shows that to be true over and over again. Before Luke is even, or excuse me, before Jesus is even born, Luke shows that God is at work fulfilling his word. So in chapter 1, John the Baptist was born and preaches to prepare the way for Christ. And and you can see prophecy given and fulfilled just in chapter 1. As John the Baptist is promised to be born to an elderly couple that could not have a baby. And just as God foretold it through the angel, it happened. John would preach to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of Jesus. And just as God foretold it through the prophet Malachi, it happened. John went as a forerunner to prepare the way for Christ. Jesus was born of a virgin. Luke tells us about this in great detail. And just as God foretold it in Isaiah 7, it happened. Jesus healed the blind and the lame. And just as God foretold it in the prophet Isaiah, it happened. And Luke records it. He wants you to know about it. Jesus was numbered with transgressors. And just as God told it in Isaiah 53, it happened. In fact, in the moment that Jesus is arrested, if we were to skip forward in Luke's gospel just a few chapters, Jesus says, This scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For what is written about me has its 
fulfillment. Christ says those words in Luke chapter 22, verse 37. His understanding of his life is that he is fulfilling the perfect and good plan of God exactly as God has determined it. When it says that he was pierced for our sins in Isaiah 53, we read in terrible detail exactly how the Son of God was crucified on a cross. Just as it was written by the prophet Isaiah, so it was perfectly fulfilled by Christ Jesus. But not only is the suffering of Christ part of the perfect plan of God, so was his resurrection and exaltation. So when Christ has been raised, Jesus said to his confused followers, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Those are the words of Jesus in Luke 24. In other words, the thing that makes biblical prophecy different from some sort of destiny or fate is that our loving God orders all things according to his purpose. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And I say all of that to say this. In our text today, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus has a lot to say about the day that he returns. And since so much scripture has already been fulfilled, we must listen to what Jesus says about the day of his return. And it's my prayer that listening carefully to Christ will help each of us to be ready, and that today... And every day until we see him, we will serve him with all of our strength. So let's look at what he says, beginning in Luke 17, starting in verse 20. And we're going to see what Jesus says about the kingdom. Luke 17, verse 20 says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, this is a short answer about the plan of God for those who did not see it unfolding right in front of them. Jesus says, there's a very real sense that the kingdom of God was already present. Now, this would make no sense to his hearers because they expected the kingdom of God to be ushered in by a son of David ruling on a throne. And they were not wrong. The kingdom of God will one day be ushered in by Jesus, the son of David, who will rule on a throne. But that's not how it begins. The reason Jesus could say that the kingdom was in their midst, even though he was not ruling on a throne, was because the king was there. 
And in fact, he was about to be inaugurated. And you might ask, how is Jesus inaugurated? He's not ruling on a throne in Jerusalem today. But the Bible says that when Jesus was raised in glory, he sat down at the right hand of God. He is there now waiting until God the Father puts all of creation under his feet and there will be no one in rebellion under King Jesus. That's why Jesus says the kingdom cannot be observed because he's currently not here. You can't point to a capital city where King Jesus is ruling. Right now, the kingdom has no borders. It has embassies all over the world as people who worship King Jesus gather together and worship like what we're doing right now. And just like Jesus said in his day, the kingdom is in our midst now because we recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in fact, it's spreading. I don't know how often you think about things like this, but there are more Christians today, in 2019, than there have been at any other time in human history. There are believers all over Africa and all over Asia. And even here, where sometimes the church feels like it's losing ground, even here, God is at work saving people and calling them to himself. Even here, the church will not be defeated. King Jesus never loses. But the truth is that the king is not recognized by everyone today. While Jesus is with the Father, he has left the church with the mission to spread the gospel of the kingdom to the entire world. We are to spread the good news that the king will forgive our sins and our rebellion because in his love and mercy... He has died in our place. He has been executed for treason that we committed. And that is good news. We have a king of love. But if you reject the good news, the coming of the Son of Man that inaugurates the kingdom will not be good for you. And Jesus does two things as he turns and describes this to the disciples. He describes what the times leading up to his return will be like. And then he describes the day of his return. And he does them both at the same time. So what I'm going to do now is I want to read the rest of our passage for today. And then we're going to discuss the days of the Son of Man, plural. The days leading up to his return. And then we're going to discuss the day of his revealing, singular, which has not happened yet, which we still look forward to. And my prayer is that as we listen to what Jesus says, our hearts would be ready. So read with me verses 22 through 37 and hear what Christ says to his disciples. Verse 22, and he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, 
He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, There will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Jesus gives his disciples an honest and open and detailed answer because he wants them to be ready for these Days. Did you catch what he said in verse 25? That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected? You get the sense that Jesus says this is not optional. Because it's not optional. It was part of the plan of God that would ultimately glorify King Jesus. That would help you and I know the heart of this King. So that as Jesus was rejected, the kingdom is hidden. It's not something that you can observe. His rejection will bring judgment. That's why I asked Kevin to read from the book of 2 Thessalonians. Because Paul, writing to believers who are waiting for the coming of Christ, says that it is just and right that when Christ returns, he will enact vengeance on those who rejected Jesus. And this is what Jesus is describing here. He makes it clear that he must be rejected. And he says something that I think we all need to hear. His return will be un mistakable. His return will be unmistakable. Notice what he says in verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. In other words, you don't need a special code to crack the secrets of the Bible so that you can tell when Jesus is coming. God wants his word to be obvious and clear. And when Jesus comes back, it will be obvious and clear. No one will miss it when Jesus comes back. 
You don't need to worry about that. And you don't need someone with some sort of special secret insight to explain it to you. The word of God is living and active and powerful. God wants you and I to listen to it in preaching. He wants you and I to read it. His intention is not to put secrets in there. That's not the kind of God we serve. The kind of God we serve wants to declare openly what you and I must do now. And what he says is, you and I need to be ready for this day by repenting of our sins and worshiping the king before he comes back. Because what he describes is that the days of the Son of Man, plural, will be full of judgment leading up to his return. And when he returns, it will be too late to repent. He gives two examples of that. The first example that he mentions are the days of Noah. Now think for just a second. He's saying the days of the Son of Man, plural, I believe start when Jesus was on the earth when he walked here over 2,000 years ago. Because the days of Noah included Noah's life up to the time of the flood, but when the day, singular, of Noah came, the door was closed and the flood came and judgment fell. The days of the Son of Man began when the Son of Man was here 2,000 years ago. But the day of the Son of Man will come just as the flood of Noah was unmistakable. So it will be when Jesus returns. You will not miss it. You will see it with great clarity. And Jesus describes how the people in Noah's day did not listen to the preaching of Noah. Instead, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. In other words, it was just life as usual. The Bible tells us that Noah preached that people needed to repent, and no one listened. They didn't believe the preaching of Noah. And so they were condemned. And in the same way, Jesus preached, and many people did not believe him, The apostles have preached, and many people did not believe them, and the church of Jesus has proclaimed this message for 2,000 years, and many people do not believe and are not ready and will not be ready. It's life as usual, and they will be unprepared when Jesus returns. The second example he gives is the example of Lot. And you might remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, how they're a city with a reputation for great evil. And it says in Genesis that God heard the cries of the victims. It's not as though God hates sinners. God loves people. But the problem with sin is that it hurts us and it hurts the people around us. And Genesis describes in this instance, God heard the cries of the people who were suffering and his judgment was literally an answer to the prayers of suffering people. And so as the people in Sodom and Gomorrah were suffering and crying out to God, God came and judged their city. And it serves as an example for all of human history that God will put an end to evil and suffering. And if you do not repent, that means that God will put an end to you. But in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, that day, singular, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. 
And so Jesus gives us two examples. The days leading up to this destruction, people did not listen to his word. People were not ready. People were unprepared. And the destruction came, and there was no chance to repent. The day of his revealing will be too late to repent. You can see this, and I want to mention just a couple of verses that mention that day, singular, with its clarity. So look again at verse 24. He says, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. In other words, it is unmistakable. It is universally seen. Go down to verse 30. It says, Just like those days from Lot... When fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, verse 30, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, destruction comes when the Son of Man comes. If you are not ready for his return, it will be a day of destruction. And everything else he says is a warning so that you will not be destroyed. He's let one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house, don't go get your stuff. Likewise, the one who's in the field, don't turn back to try to rescue anything. And then he says this, he says, remember Lot's wife. Well, maybe you don't remember that part of the story, so so let me remind you. As Abraham has pleaded for the city that God says, I'm going to judge, he says, will you spare the city if there are so many righteous people in it? And he barters back and forth and gets that number down to fewer and fewer and fewer. And it becomes evident that there are no real righteous people in the city. But God saves Lot and Lot's family. And he sends a messenger that goes to Lot, says, you must leave tonight. And Lot's family flees. But Lot's wife, as they are fleeing this destruction, turns and looks back at the city that she loved. The scripture says she is turned to a pillar of salt. She was killed in a moment and was left behind. And what Jesus is saying is that she longed for the city that God was judging. And you and I are to learn from her example. If we are too tied to this earth, we will not be ready either. And so we are urged to be ready for this day. And and I want to talk about how we should be ready. Some have a, a foolish idea that in the last days, we need to just stockpile guns and ammo and food rations. Let me be blunt. Jesus says, if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. Period. And what are guns and ammo and rations if not human attempts to preserve your life? So if you think that you will save your life by your preparedness, you are a fool for not listening to the words of Christ. Jesus is not telling you this so that you can hunker down in a bunker. He intends for you and I to serve him with our life, whatever that means. You are not to hide out until his return. There will be no safety in hiding. Secondly, do not waste your time in idle speculation. People will 
have all kinds of crazy ideas about predicting the return of Christ. Jesus says, don't bother. Don't believe them. Don't waste your time and energy. When he returns, it will be obvious. And you will not have a sense of when he is coming until he is here. But what is clear are the commands of Jesus. And now we are to obey them. And here's one command from this text. He says, if you want to save your life, if you want to avoid judgment, you must lose it. Look again exactly at what he says in verse 33. I tell you, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So Jesus expects you and I to lose our lives for the sake of the kingdom. What does that mean? He's already talked about this in the Gospel of Luke. And I believe there are a couple of ways that we can be ready to lose our lives for Jesus. Number one, we need to believe the word of God that God's just judgment is coming. It doesn't mean that you take a judgmental attitude towards non-believers. Think about what Jesus did when he was here. Jesus came to save sinners, both Pharisees and prostitutes, all kinds of sinners. And he came and he loved them. So as we recognize that God's judgment is coming, we don't have a superior attitude towards other people. We, like Jesus, have the attitude that we want to see as many people be saved as possible. Jesus' whole life was lived to save sinners. He says that's the purpose that he came for. Jesus' point in teaching this is that we need to be ready for the day when God's patience ends. God will judge sin. And so first, you need to make sure that you have repented of your sin and take this warning of judgment seriously. Secondly, let me urge you not only just to believe the word of God when it says this day is coming, but secondly, go to war against covetousness in your heart. Live so that you are always ready to abandon your things. Now, where did I get that? He describes two instances where someone must be ready in a moment to leave everything behind. He says there's, there's a guy who's on the housetop with his goods in the house. He says, don't go back for your goods. Leave them behind. He describes people in a field that are, that are out far away from their possessions when the Son of Man comes, and he says, do not go back for your stuff. And so the Son of Man returning in that day is a day of great emergency. And I want to ask you to think for a moment, how do we prepare for emergencies? You know, as a little kid, I remember we had a two-story house, and all the bedrooms were upstairs. And so I remember my mom took us to a fire department where they had a little house and they put some steam in the house that acted kind of like smoke, and they made the alarm go off, and the firemen taught us, okay, this is how you crawl in case of a fire. And, and I still remember, I was a really little kid, but, but I remember the fireman teaching me, he said, when, when you want to feel a doorknob or a door, you don't reach with your hand like this, because it'll burn your hand, and you won't be able to use it. So you touch the back of your hand to a door or to a doorknob, and just see if it's safe to go through that door. And we practiced in a house that was not on fire. So that if our house did catch on fire, 
we would be ready. And I knew where the escape ladder was, and I knew how to put it on my window. You might say, your mom was crazy. No, she wanted to be ready for the worst because she knew that it could happen. And so it is with us. We know that Jesus is coming. So we must be ready. And if you want to be able to abandon your things in that day, practice abandoning them in little ways now. Hold your things loosely. Be radically generous with what you have. It pleases your generous God when you are generous with other people. If you have an open hand and you abandon your things now, it's very much like that little practice house that the fire department had where we got down on our hands and knees and we crawled and we pretended like it was on fire so that if there were a real fire, we would be ready. Well, you know how you prepare to abandon all your things in the day of Jesus? Start abandoning some of them now. Use the things that you have. Give up the good things that you love for the good of others. That's why Lot's wife is so tragic. Many of the things I'm sure she loved were good things. She's not necessarily one of the women who is so sinful with the rest of the city. We don't, we don't know. I mean, I'm sure she wasn't perfect. Lot certainly wasn't perfect. But it's completely possible that her love was for good things and it caused her to miss what God was doing. And she didn't recognize her need for salvation and so she was not saved. So now, don't let good things turn your heart away from Christ. Give your life to him. Recognize God made you. Jesus bought you with his blood. Confess your sin and rebellion now and begin to obediently follow Jesus. You can seek God in prayer now. And in fact, the next message we're going to look, Jesus teaches us to pray about this day. You can spread the good news of God's mercy to others that we can be forgiven now, but it begins by bowing the knee today. Recognize that you must use your possessions for the king before the king comes. So if you behave like your stuff is yours, you are the kind of person who will look back. You can tell that now. Recognize that your time is not your own. God knows how much time you have and he's given it to you. If you treat your time like it's your own, you will not be ready in that day. You will be caught unprepared and unaware. But if you live every day like Jesus is coming back, you will be ready. So parents and grandparents, number one, be ready yourself. Be humble and repent of your own sins. Use your time and your possessions for the king. But also prepare your kids to meet Jesus. Pray that they will be ready and teach them the gospel. And church, this is one reason why prayer is so urgent for us, that we need to pray together, not just in this service, but at every opportunity that we see each other, that we can pray that we would be ready. And let's pray right now. Father in heaven, we have heard the teaching of Christ, what this day will be like. And I ask that you would help us to live soberly, that you would help us to live alertly, that you would teach us to live every moment as if it could be the moment that Jesus will return and that we would not be ashamed, but that we would be full of joy at his coming. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I want to dismiss you with a scripture reading from 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, Encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Go in peace.